I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. We know the old expression, we are what we eat. Well, it seems in many cases, one's breast cancer may be connected to what one eats or has eaten as well. And it's not just one's eating decisions, but a myriad of lifestyle choices, many of them made during adolescence. Dr. Graham Kolditz is the Chief of the Division of Public Health Sciences in the Department of Surgery and the Associate Director of Prevention and Control at the Alvin J. Seitman Cancer Center at the Washington University School of Medicine. He is also Deputy Director of their Institute for Public Health. Dr. Kolditz is an internationally recognized leader in cancer prevention. As an epidemiologist and public health expert, he has a longstanding interest in the preventable causes of chronic disease, particularly among women. He's also interested in strategies to speed translation of research findings to prevention strategies that work. His past work has focused on the health effects of smoking, weight and weight gain, physical activity, diet, and the adverse effects of medications such as postmenopausal hormone therapy, documenting that current use increases risk of breast cancer. Dr. Kolditz has published over 1,100 peer-reviewed publications, six books, and earned numerous awards. He also developed the widely cited website Your Disease Risk to assess individual risk and communicate tailored prevention messages to the public. He has been a BCRF investigator since 2004 and is among the most highly cited medical researchers in the world. Before my conversation with Dr. Kolditz, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Here's my conversation with Dr. Graham Kolditz. Dr. Kolditz, thank you for joining. I appreciate your time. My pleasure being with you today. So I read a write-up about the impact you seek to make through your career and area of focus. And the first sentence of that impact statement reads, it is estimated that nearly a third of breast cancers could be prevented by lifestyle choices, particularly those that support and maintain a healthy weight, including diet and exercise. And I confess that made me feel really good and somewhat not so good. The, the not so good maybe is obvious. Um, the sadness that so many people suffer based not purely on genetics, but rather lifestyle choices. The good part, it would seem that cancers resulting from lifestyle choices can be preventable through the help of scientists like you and personal actions. So help me, please, doctor. Should I be feeling lousy or hopeful or both? Oh, I think both. I can say a little for the both in that it's clear some of our risk can be set fairly early in life. Um, mm. And so we are not thinking about cancer as children or adolescents. And so that's maybe personal choices, peer pressure, and so on, that changes a little how much control we may have. But at the same time, 
factors later in life that we do as adults and uh, free living have definitely more control over, whether we have complete control, whether, you know, the social, political environment we live Mm -hmm. in doesn't tax alcohol as much as you and I might want it to be taxed to cut down our easy access. access. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But it's that spirit. Understood. So help me, if you would level set on the science and how one derives conclusions out of an area where, again, for an outsider, one can hear the numbers and you want to understand. So how does one actually get to those numbers? We can get to some of the root causes. and You you derive the statistics that generate a statement such as, it is estimated that nearly a third of breast cancers could be prevented by lifestyle choices. What is the scientific discovery process look like? How do you, quote, prove that? And to what extent, how do you factor out or consider the role that genetics play and to what extent they are tightly connected to so-called lifestyle choices like healthy weight? Sorry, there's a lot there. Unpack decades of work, right? In, <laughs> in, you know, in, yeah, in 30 seconds, if you could, yeah, with the clean, right. and if you could give a clean in and a clean out, that would really help. Yeah. <laughs> so the simplest concept of this would be to identify a set of, say, women in this case, we're studying breast cancer, who are at very healthy lifestyle, healthy diet, say no alcohol, average weight, follow them over time and follow a group that is high risk heavy drinking, overweight, and so on. And we can compare the difference in the risk of breast cancer between the two groups and do the arithmetic to estimate what proportion is avoided by following the healthy lifestyle. Then you raise genetics. So we have to then factor in family history, say, Um, And we can look in women with no family history and see these Mm. same effects. So the statistics and the inference from both the human data there, often to get to the cause and prove words that you were asking, we want to see bench science, animal models, are the hormone levels mechanisms that actually um, support the association? So when we look at alcohol and breast cancer, the International Agency for Research on Cancer concludes alcohol causes breast and a whole range of other cancers. They'll look at the human evidence, the animal and other sources of evidence to lay out a mechanism as to how alcohol is actually um, causing cancer and how it's doing that in the breast. As you go through that science and as you focus on how various choices, and, and this is part of what really caught my attention as well, that choices made even in childhood and adolescence can impact a person's future risk of breast cancer. I mean, to exaggerate the point, it can get hard to get an adolescent to stop watching TikTok 
to do homework due the next day. How do we start to talk to, how does one convince her to sleep more now to help prevent breast cancer in 20 years? So you've hit a really important point that a lot of the lifestyle in childhood and adolescence won't be framed in terms of just breast cancer risk. It'll be for your health, for your future health, and adolescents aren't always so future-oriented as we know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the totally right that, again, studies show diet and physical activity, physical activity particularly, say, between ages 12 and 20, actually can have a lifelong impact. So how do we have a society that supports that rather than thinking it's just TikTok or just the mode of transport we have, access to safe exercise, all of these things, I think, come together. And that will reduce risk of diabetes, heart disease and stroke, as well as what we're after, which is breast cancer, because we don't have the say, the same range of options for prevention for breast as those other conditions I mentioned. There's one area of your study, and please correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, um, that also struck me. The benefits to adolescents of eating nuts. Why are nuts such a big deal for adolescents to eat? That's a super question. And the um, interesting thing here is that we can look at you know, diet, fruit, vegetable fiber, nuts come through as clearly reducing risk. And, you know, my colleagues at Harvard have studied nuts in relation to other um, diseases, right? But the assumption at this stage is still that nuts are uh, uniquely good at changing your metabolic profile, and that this, in fact, then is um, translating through to breast cancer risk. I don't think we've got all the fine details of mechanisms nailed down, but it's consistent across multiple studies and, again, fairly simple part of lifestyle, if you will. And another area into which I understand you plan to dive deeper how modifiable factors such as diet affect or reduce the risk of breast cancer, including how those factors affect the rate of transition between breast cancer states, such as the progression from benign breast disease to breast cancer. Where are you on that work? I couldn't fully determine whether this was a, an idea in, in the, a gleam in your eye or whether you were deep into the research. So, so tell me about this, please. Very cool. We're actually writing a grant, literally, as we speak, or over the weekend, um, but over multiple weeks now mm. to really further understand which factors are impacting sort of, if you will, the age at onset of the first lesions, the pre-malignant changes, and which factors are driving subsequent um speed of growth, transition from benign lesions to um, invasive or in situ and then invasive disease. And the um, 
irony in much of our insight on prevention is that we we don't always have a very good sense of the timeline of when change in lifestyle will actually finally translate to mm. lower risk. Okay, for smoking cessation and heart attack, we know that's a very um, short cycle, but obesity and cancer, lots of different ways that this can be changing risk. And so it will help us focus and identify who's going to benefit most from the changes for prevention. So grant pending, um, colleagues working with me on statistical methods to improve the way we can look at this, uh, building on our pre-malignant lesion repository that we've got. That, um, so there's a number of ways to come at this. So it's moving, maybe not as fast as we'd all like, but it's it's beyond just a glimmer. Terrific to be beyond just a glimmer. Picking up though, just on one of the elements that you said, what inspired the choice or the decision that there is a need to look at that? Was there a gap perhaps in data that you had noticed? Was there new data that came across or was this a an area that you or colleagues had kind of always wanted to look at, but now just it so happens that the time is right? No. So one of the concerns I've had with recommendations about prevention going back 30 years of teaching on this is that we often end up with, you know, recommendations. If we act now, we can have cancer mortality in 10 years. And you're like, really? Um, <laughs> is it all going to change that quickly? Mm. Right. And yeah. our sense to engage people where they're at with the level of risk they're at, we have to have realistic um, sense of what change will lead to uh, risk reduction over what time frame. And that just trying to bring more clarity to that is really motivating this. And so it is right in front of us to be done still. One more question on the science component. And then I want to get into Yes, uh, I, I have the privilege to do a number of these conversations. And in preparation for this conversation, I did get many questions around the, well, what should I do here? What should people do here? So yes, as you know, from the questions that I know you get peppered with all the time, people do want those uh, tips from you. So uh, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I am going to at least ask you for those tips. But But one more question to connect really the science, the biology, and the behavior. How does something like obesity or diet or sleep even connect with something as specific as breast cancer? What is that path? How do those dots actually connect? So let's take obesity after menopause where and further weight gain, which of course is the trajectory most of the world is on. Um, we know that the more overweight a woman is, the higher her estrogen levels are. Estrogen acts, if you will, as a fertilizer for cell division, and cell division can lead to even more genetic damage accumulating, right? So that one is, um, in fact, very 
we'll say simple, um, and we can compare US, Japan, other countries that have mm. different weight gain trajectories and see a substantial portion of postmenopausal breast cancer can really be explained by this higher obesity, higher hormone exposure, and higher breast cancer. Now to get back to putting you on the hook. We, we got a number of questions that folks would like in terms of helping guide their personal behavior. I imagine that you might have various caveats. Please feel free to let me know about them, such as each of us is different and each of us should discuss our personal situations with our personal physicians. Any other caveats you, you please uh, add, of course. But if I could ask you some of these to begin, are there any foods that are proven to reduce your risk of breast cancer? Is there such a thing as a breast cancer fighting food or a breast cancer diet even? Not a specific food, but the fruit and vegetable um, cluster still is probably the most promising part of diet for prevention of breast cancer. And you just mentioned estrogen a moment ago. What's the link between estrogen and the food that you eat? Are there foods that can lower or increase the estrogen in your body? And because you've already talked about the, the effect that estrogen can have um, in terms of risk of breast cancer. So the, the challenge for the foods lowering estrogen really comes down to separating out the foods and weight, right? Um, but the uh, potential is there for a higher fiber diet to actually be helpful in the sort of steady hormone uh, status. Higher uh, physical activity is probably working in that direction too. Mm. But a specific food is not going to um, change hormone levels up or down on its own. Maybe alcohol has some impact separately where it's sort of a chemical agent, if you will, that's very different from trying to think across yeah. all the foods I eat, which chemical am I getting with alcohol we actually know what we have. You've mentioned alcohol a number of times. Is that primary or close to primary on your mind in terms of things that you worry about in terms of lifestyle choices? Both in terms of lifestyle choices and how we could counter its effect in the breast. Yes. Mm. Um, for a long time, we've puzzled over whether there are the equivalents of the um, vitamin you could take that would counter the effect of alcohol. We have colleagues who say, well, just stop everyone from drinking. And it's like, I think we tried that as a nation once, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and we know that adolescents and college age women have caught up to men with their alcohol consumption. So the trends are probably going in the wrong direction for breast mm. cancer. So what are the potential uh, ways to a control the amount of consumption and then b if there are women who are continuing to drink how do we find strategies to counter that effect and that's still an open question what about breastfeeding 
does breastfeeding, quote, prevent breast cancer? What, what do researchers know about the link? Yes. So we've looked at, you know, the analysis of all the published studies, and definitely there is a reduction in risk for women who have breastfed. And the longer they've breastfed, the lower their personal risk. Um, this relates to changes in the breast, the breast tissue um, that are, in fact, a consequence of breastfeeding. And, you know, the good news is there's benefit. The Again, the bad news, our social structure, there are workplaces where breastfeeding is really hard, if impossible. And so we can think of this as, yes, it may be an option for some women. It's not, I would say, an option for every woman, uh, given her work and social circumstances. So you could argue collectively as a, we should be providing more support for breastfeeding if we care about this as a nation. Um, but yes, the um, changes in tissue, uh, lifelong benefit, and um, more is better in this case, even though as we have fewer and fewer children, that is sort of diminishing returns. Yeah, population demographic changes are very, very significant. I think the last question I have on the tips from Dr. Kolditz's section of this conversation, you mentioned exercise, of course, and we all hear, read about all the ways in which exercise, even very little bits of exercise can be beneficial. Any other non-lifestyle choices that someone should consider to reduce their risk of breast cancer? I would put in there as well the uh, avoiding further weight gain mm. rather than thinking we've all got to go back to whatever weight we were in high school or somewhere that is, we'll say, largely unattainable. Um, if we all avoided more weight gain in 10 years' time, the nation would be leaner than if we all kept gaining one to two pounds a year. And so setting a a monitoring, self-monitoring scales and paying attention to weight rather than what we may do as a nation is sort of New Year's resolution, try to lose weight, give up, gain it back. And it's a seesaw that keeps going up. What an excellent way to frame it. So the idea of losing weight, getting back to that college weight or whatever is so intimidating. It makes it so easy to give up. Instead, to frame it as okay, just maintain. It's just much more attainable, just much easier to consider. Tell me about the Your Disease Risk website. What is it? How should people use it? What kind of impact does it have? Is its impact educational or on actual behavior? Oh, that's a really great question. So a uh, quick summary, the the website was developed over 20 years ago with a goal of helping people understand that cancer is preventable. The thought process in the 1990s, if we can go back that far before COVID, sort of this, well, I, there's nothing I can do. And we put the evidence together, worked out how to communicate that to the general public, and developed a tool that is engaging and offering 
tips and strategies to uh, adopt changes in lifestyle that can lower risk. And so it's used, um, it's engaging, and really takes account of where you are at now in your risk factor profile as to suggestions for changes. Um, the ability for it to sort of transform people's behavior overnight just by using the tool once is um, well, well, that would be a high bar. Yeah, we were wishful we thinking. The, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Um, yeah. But the definitely we have it's been used in studies by colleagues, either a component of it or more to promote more discussion with your primary care provider about risk and risk reduction strategies, things like this that show it actually is engaging women and having them engage in more discussion of prevention. I think they're all steps towards successful uh, changes to lower mm. risk. Um, and there are certainly people who come back multiple times. So uh, lots of pieces to support that it's beneficial, but um, we can't say if you go use it tonight by the end of the month, you'll have sort of moved your risk down. Well, you do understand, doctor, that we, we live in a time of immediate gratification. Uh, if, if not by the end of the month, I, I, you know, certainly by the end of next month, you can guarantee that, right? There you go. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So uh, it is hard to have the privilege of getting to talk with you and not also ask about your landmark work from now more than 25 years ago. You helped identify the increase in risk of breast cancer with the use of combined estrogen plus progestin therapy and a significant increase uh, in risk with increasing duration of use. Yes. You also showed that mortality from breast cancer was also elevated among current users. How do you look back now on that work and the incredible impact that has made? That's a super question. And it's sort of gratifying that the results held up the Women's mm. Health Initiative trial um, held up and it in further evidence that's accumulated UK and elsewhere, the continuing current use is the real driver back at our earlier question. When you stop using that combination, risk starts to fall back to where it would have been. Mm. Um, so there's a, a real sort of effect it's re reversible in large part and while the manufacturing industry fought tooth and nail to if you will discredit some of this and assemble data that contradicted what we and other studies obviously showed you know the trial stopped early therefore it must have been wrong well it stopped early because the stopping rule said adverse breast cancer was a reason to, <laughs> to right. stop right so people yeah, can yeah. twist this um but it to me highlights again the good data focused on breast cancer can really help understand how the disease process is modifiable and so we should be continuing to push for other ways to to modify this risk well it's incredible 
impact uh, to so many people uh, over such a, a period of time. It's, it's wonderful. I'm curious about, you grew up in Australia. And as I understand it growing up, you enjoyed your share of cricket and rugby. And now, besides the individual impact you've made on individual lives, do, do you happen to know what the H index is? Just Do you know what that yes. is? Are, are you familiar <laughs> with the two? So, yes, yeah. yes for uh, listeners who aren't aware, um, it's an author-level metric that measures both the productivity and citation impact of the publications initially used for an individual scientist or scholar. According to Google Scholar statistics, you have the highest H-level index of any living author. Um, I can only assume that that was your exact expectation set as you got into this, wasn't it? Not at all. And it's a moving target who's at the top, right? But it's a great question. You know, in med school, I really wanted to do prevention. I did oncology rotations where you had lung cancer patients that clearly had been smoking. And we didn't talk about smoking cessation in med school, right? And then you do another ward with women with ovarian cancer. And we got at that point, no idea what's causing ovarian cancer. And that sort of hands-on experience really um, pushed me to ask why aren't we doing more to prevent this pretty horrible set of diseases? Lung, ovary, breast. My sister-in-law died of breast cancer in her 20s. Um, So it's really dramatic to see we've made a lot of progress. Um, It's still challenging that there's so much more Mm. to do, but... um, as a med student, it was, I just want to go and do some prevention. And um, my mum was upset. I didn't come back to Australia after I finished my um, PhD, right? But Can't blame her <laughs> for that. Go. She was factually, <laughs> she was right. Uh, it, but it's got to, what do any of us want to do? We want to make impact in whatever chosen profession. And to have done that and to have your work, I mean, to have that double benefit of knowing that you're making impact on individual lives, personal lives, but that also it's getting amplified because it's being cited because in in the metrics around how it's being cited. When I came across that fact about you, um, it just struck me that that must be a double or even somehow exponential level of satisfaction because you know you're getting to make impact beyond yourself. Um, It grows through uh, others citing your work. Um, And that's a nice thing. And and in a real way, the mentoring junior colleagues and Mm. supporting them is another, you know, we don't have an index for that, but that is part of the, the power of this, that the, the number and range of people and the skills that are coming to prevention um, clearly has grown over time. Um, And yes, the work is cited, but we've got to also move it to the next level to get the changes in behavior to get. Of course, we're we're not going to let you rest on your H index, doctor. You know that. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You We're not stopping there. Um, to, To close out, if you would, 
What role has BCRF played in your research? Well, they've been an amazingly steady support for our work to, um, and I will say unique support for our work to look at this um, childhood and adolescent exposures and breast cancer. We've tried to get NIH funding for this on and off over the years, and the peer review process is skeptical of that. Um, but BCRF has been there through the whole of this. And if you look, we've contributed substantially to the uh, literature on the adolescent diet activity and so on early on that others have then tried to replicate in other studies. And, um, you know, BCRF was in there at the beginning of this and to this day continues to support us to build on both the adolescent piece, but also now more on the um, pre-malignant lesions and how they progress and what we can do to modify that. So um, wouldn't be here today where we're at without that support over the years. Well, that, that's kind of you. And I'm sure that what folks uh, would like now is for you to get back to the grant writing, figure out this leisure thing, uh, and and keep keep pushing your H index uh, and and the impact that you make. Uh, Dr. Coltis, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you have done throughout your lifetime. Chris, thank you. It's great to be here. And thanks to BCRF for all the support. That was my conversation with Dr. Graham Kolditz. My thanks to Dr. Kolditz for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.